Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Robert, and today's scripture reading comes from Judges 6, 1 through 24. Um, it is a little longer, so if, if you're able to, please remain standing. If not, that's okay. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Bezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speak with me. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. Fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you today. Glad that you're here with us at Disciples. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors, and we are glad, as always, that you're here. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Well, as we move into this chapter and continue on in the study of the book of Judges, we come today to a name that is finally familiar. Maybe you heard of Deborah previously, maybe you had heard of Ehud, but almost certainly, if you grew up in and around the church, you've heard before of Gideon, although this is the portion of the story that many people are actually not familiar with. 
So I was talking yesterday and someone said, um, so are we going to talk about the, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon? If you remember that line, kind of a classic line from Sunday school days. And the answer is that mention that I just made is the only mention of it you're going to hear this morning because we're looking at a different portion of the life of Gideon and one that really gives us an insight into what it is that God is continuing to do through the course of this book. And as we talked about last week, one of the blessings of studying a text like the one that's in front of you this morning is that it helps shine a light on other texts. In this case, particularly sheds light on other Old Testament texts. So for instance, we find in Isaiah chapter 9, the story of the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. It's a story that's very familiar to you. If I were to read the entirety of chapter 9, likely it's one that you would know uh, or at least be familiar with from having heard it around Christmas time. It's very familiar. But part of that text says this, beginning in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, pardon, before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And in this passage in Isaiah chapter 9 that is devoted almost entirely to talking about the coming of the Messiah, the salvation that he was going to bring, the light that he was going to bring into darkness, the rescue that he was going to provide for his people, the illustration that the prophet Isaiah uses in that particular book is the story that was just read for you this morning. The last line of that verse, you have broken as on the day of Midian, is a reference to what's going to happen in and through Gideon. That so great was the victory that God delivered over the oppression of the Midianites that it was emblematic of the salvation that God was going to ultimately bring. It was a foreshadowing of the final victory that was going to come through the Messiah. And once again, as we approach this story, we look at it through the lens of what it's going to reveal to us about Jesus. When you read these Old Testament texts, Don't look at them purely as illustration, purely as history, or as moral story, but rather look for what it is that it reveals about who Jesus Christ is. And so we'll look, beginning in verse 1. The people of Israel, once again now, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey." Now imagine for just a moment living this existence. Imagine being one of the people of God. You've inherited the land that God had promised to your forefathers. You've grown up in this land knowing his blessing. But now for the last seven years, everything about your life, the peace, the tranquility, the blessing, the confidence of having harvest at the end of the season, none of those things are assured anymore. Because now this land has been occupied by the Midianites and the Amalekites, these people who were known for their cruelty and their brutality. And in this particular case, were known for having come in at just the moment when you were about to harvest and taking literally everything that you had. 
They would pillage and they would steal. They would take up the harvest. They would take all of the animals for themselves and they would leave you and your family with nothing but the land. Land that at that point is almost worthless. And so again, the next year, People go in hoping this is the year that they can actually receive the harvest from all of the work that they've put in. And yet again, here come the Midianites to take everything for seven years. For seven years, they couldn't harvest their own crops. They couldn't effectively feed their own families. They couldn't live with any sort of stability. They were reduced to a life of feeding on scraps and barely getting by. And just at the time when they thought maybe this was the year it was going to change, it happened again. So the Israelites did what we've seen them do all throughout the course of this book. They pray for deliverance once again. God, we know we've abandoned you. We know we've disobeyed you. We know we rejected you. But please come and rescue us. Deliver us from the hand of the Midianites. And maybe they had just grown accustomed to this arrangement. Maybe they had expected that once again, God would just immediately jump in and give them a deliverer. But God here alters the pattern just slightly. Because look what happens, verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent not a judge, but a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So the people are calling out for deliverance. They are desperately desiring a change in their circumstances. They are asking and pleading for God to intervene and to demonstrate his power over the Midianites and their oppression. But instead, God gives them a prophet. And as one commentator remarked, this would be like having your car break down and asking for a mechanic and being delivered a philosopher almost of no help to the practical circumstances of their lives. He gives them someone who is going to remind them of God's previous deliverance, of all of the past times that God had given them grace and showed them mercy and brought them out of slavery and given them salvation. And the thought has to be running through their minds of why is God giving us this message? I don't need yesterday's grace. And I don't need last year's deliverance. I need a change of my circumstances right now. And as I read this this week, my mind went to all the times in my life, they're too numerous to remember, yet alone, let alone count, where I've asked God to act or intervene in my life in a certain way. Where I've described my situation to God and I've asked him to intervene and where I essentially defined for him what I needed and therefore what he ought to do as a loving God. And as a demonstration of his grace, there have been countless times over the course of years where despite my ignorance or my arrogance, God has graciously acted and granted what I asked for. But there have also been many other times where the answer to my particular requests have been no. Or just as often, not right now. 
And the truth of what's happening in Judges chapter 6 is that God is just as gracious and just as kind in those moments as he is in the moments where he acquiesces to our requests. Because though God is concerned with your circumstances, and he is, he is infinitely more concerned with your heart and with your trust in him. And what we see in this text is God putting the spiritual well-being and the spiritual care of his people's soul above their temporary circumstances. And in that moment, though he had a plan for their deliverance, all worked out. He knew that what they first needed was to be reminded of his past faithfulness and grace toward them. Because in reminding them of that, he was revealing to them what they had forgotten and where their hope rested. See, their hope and their confidence and their peace to the extent that they were desiring those things and to the extent that they had seen those things previously, their hope and their peace didn't rest in their circumstantial safety or their freedom from the Midianites. Their hope rested in the fact that the God who had loved and provided for them consistently and faithfully all throughout their history and all throughout their past was still in control in the moment where things seemed out of control to them. in the moment when their lives were turned upside down, where they were tempted to run and abandon, to ignore God or rebel against God or to think that God didn't care, God was showing them that his past faithfulness to them was evidence of his continued love. And the invitation for us, thousands of years removed from this story, but suffering with the same hearts of the Israelite people, is that when you and your life have moments where things, to, where things seem to be uncertain or out of control or frightening, God's invitation to you is, remember who I am. All throughout this text, he says, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who delivered you out of slavery. I'm the God who gave you the judges to release you from the oppression of foreign armies. I'm the God who fed you in the wilderness. I'm the God who gave you grace when you least deserved it. I'm the God who showed you mercy when, when, when what you deserved was wrath. I'm the God who has had my hand on every single moment of your entire life to this point. Do you not think I can handle the next moment? I have power over all of creation, God is indicating in this text. I have power over your situation, and I even have power over those who might wish you harm. So as you wrestle, and if you haven't yet, you will, as you wrestle with fears and anxieties and worries, remember this. The reminder of God's past provision brings solace that he has control over your future unknowns. The reminder of God's past provision brings solace that he has control over your future unknowns. It's a reminder of what's given to us in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1, where the Lord, speaking through the prophet, says, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear your call. 
And this is why, brothers and sisters, we need the reminder of the gospel constantly. As Luther said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. And as one modern theologian quipped, it's the reason that we need sermons that end not with a law question, what will you now do for God, but rather a gospel declaration, this is what Jesus has done for you. Because it is only that gospel declaration of what Jesus has done for you that will enable you to be what God would desire you to be. And so now, in verses 11 through 12, we find this story beginning to play itself out. We find Gideon farming in secret. He's actually, he's actually trying to farm hidden up in the hills, away from the sight of, of passers-by, so that hopefully he can go undetected and actually reap the harvest that he had worked so hard to plant and cultivate. And upon him comes in that moment an angel of the Lord, the Lord appearing to him is how it's conveyed to us, who comes to him and says, Gideon, the Lord is with you and you're a mighty man of valor. Now he says this to a man who is actively hiding in the hills, who is hoping not to be discovered, who is hoping just to be left alone, to be left in the background. And to that particular man, the angel says, you are a man of valor. And Gideon, hearing this, at least as I read it, assigning my own motivations to Gideon, which may or may not be fair, responds with his almost sarcastic, albeit natural, question. There's sincerity in his voice, but there's also doubt Because he says in verse 13, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. And save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on in Gideon's mind, but it at least appears that he's experiencing some sort of crisis of faith. He's actively hiding from the Midianites in the mountains. He's seen the hardship in the, in the lives of the people around him. He feels abandoned, and he can't even imagine why God bothered sending a prophet to remind the people of his past faithfulness. He's so questioning of that move on God's part that he literally says, where are God's deeds now? Now, maybe without the venom, what he's actually saying in modern parlance is, what has God done for me lately? And that is likely something that everyone has experienced to some extent or another. Utter confusion at how God can be good and yet allow difficult, heartbreaking circumstances. But what's interesting is that the angel doesn't actually indulge the answer to that question. The response from him instead is, Gideon, not only is God good, And not only has he not abandoned you, but he has a plan for you to be your people's means of deliverance. 
And Gideon's answer back is striking. Lord, I'm the least important member of a forgettable family. I come from a no-name family, the smallest, most insignificant family in the entire tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least influential member of that uninfluential family. Gideon is, in essence, saying, who am I that God would even care? But friends, God does not assign value the way that we assign value. And your worth in his eyes is not determined by your name or by your past or by your ability or by your esteem in the eyes of the world around you. You have infinite worth in his eyes simply because he has declared you to be valuable. And when an infinite God sets his infinite love on you, how could he possibly love you more? In one of his books, the author and pastor Ray Ortland said that in the moments when we feel small and less than worthy in our own minds, he says you need to accept that Jesus considers you worth fighting for. He has instated you as his warrior for his kingdom because of who he is. And then quoting the great Lutheran pastor, Gerhard Ferdi, Orland goes on to say, we are justified freely for Christ's sake by faith without the exertion of our own strength, gaining of merit or doing of works. To the age-old question, what shall I do to be saved? The Christian answer is shocking. Nothing. Just be still. Shut up and listen for once in your life to what God, the almighty creator and redeemer, is saying to his world and to you in the death and resurrection of his son. Listen and believe. And because of that, you can prepare for battle. As a newly recreated image of the king, you will hear his call to take a stand in many battles in your generation. He is calling you to stand up as a liberated person, liberating others. Make no mistake, it is not a question of whether God has called you to be an agent of liberation in the proclamation of the gospel, but rather the means through which he is asking you to do it. The call is clear for all of us in this room. If you're a Christian, you are not excluded from that call. You are called as a minister of the gospel, as an agent of reconciliation, as a liberator of the captives through the declaration of the, pro uh, of the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice the reassurance that Gideon receives here in verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. I was thinking about this idea this week and I thought, I'm not sure that there is a greater promise in scripture than the words, I will be with you. We find it in the promise given to Noah after the flood. We find it in the promise to the people of God all throughout the Old Testament and the deliverance of the people of Israel. We find it in the charge of Jesus Christ as he leaves his disciples on earth. 
We find it in the book of Romans as we're told that the Holy Spirit himself indwells believers in Jesus Christ, that we are never, ever alone. It is the refrain heard throughout the gospel to his people. He always declares, I will be with you. And as Billy Graham once stated, the will of God will not take us where the grace of God cannot sustain us. And the implicit question of this text made explicit to Gideon is, what are you unable to do if the Lord is with you? Well, in verses 17 through 22, God gives this doubtful Gideon a sign that he is with him. Gideon prepares an entire meal. He brings it before this strange visitor who we know as an angel of the Lord. And that angel reaches out his staff, touches the food, fire comes up out of nowhere, consumes the food, and Gideon has his sign that this is actually a message from God himself to him. And then in verse 23, it says this, but the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and he called it, the Lord is peace. Now let me ask an obvious question. What had changed in Gideon's circumstances to this point? Nothing. Moments before, he had been outside threshing wheat and hiding from the Midianites. And moments after, he declares and makes an altar to the Lord saying, the Lord is peace. Still living under the threat of the Midianites, Israel is still weak. He is still an insignificant member of an insignificant family. But in the moment when he realizes that the Lord is with him, Gideon declares with absolute assuredness, the Lord is peace. Not because his life had gotten better or because deliverance had been realized but because in the presence of God, he discovered the source of peace itself. Now we could spend weeks looking just at the life of Gideon. But what's interesting and reassuring about the story of Gideon, and you can read it on your own in Judges chapter six through chapter eight, is that this text ends with Gideon here trusting God, declaring his goodness, and declaring that peace can only be found in him. And he's so convinced of the reality of this that he fashions this altar to stand as a permanent reminder both to him and to everybody else of the peace and the hope that they have only in God. And God, for his part, through miraculous means, delivers the people out of the hand of the Midianites. If you remember the story, Gideon leads 300 soldiers into their camp in the darkness of night. They unveil lamps. The Midianites are woken out of a dead sleep as trumpets are blaring in the background. God creates such confusion in the Midianite camp that the Midianites literally turn their swords on each other, begin to fight and battle one another in the darkness of night, and then flee and run out of this region for their lives. And the people of God hear this story and they hear about the deliverance and they hear about the miracle that's done through the person of Gideon and they come to Gideon and do immediately what the Israelites are always tempted to do, which is make entirely too much out of one person. And they come to him and they say, we want to make you our king. 
Don't just be a judge who's a deliverer, but now be our king. Now, the good part of the story is that Gideon turns that request down. He at least has enough sense for that. But the bad news is he takes from them a very generous gift that they had offered, all kinds of gold and all kinds of gifts of wealth. And he turns all of that gold and fashions it into an ephod, which is literally an apron. Later on, it was the kind of thing that was going to be worn by the priestly class. And we're told that because he did that, because he took all of this wealth and essentially made an idol out of it, that according to Judges chapter 8, verse 27, all Israel hoard after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Now the story was going so well. Why did we have to jump ahead? Couldn't we leave Gideon as a great example of faith? And here's the, re- here's the reason for including that piece of the lesson. Gideon and the people lost sight of the message that he had proclaimed here in this text. That God was the deliverer, that God was the source of peace, that he was the source of hope. And the point for us is this, biblical heroes disappoint. Because biblical heroes are not the point. They were never intended to be the purpose. The purpose of Gideon's life is not primarily to be a model of how we should live or how we should be brave or how we should discover and find and establish the will of God or anything else that we are tempted to turn into a moral lesson. Gideon's life and the salvation from the Midianites was intended to be an imperfect picture of the ultimate salvation that would come through Jesus. He was intended to be a billboard for the final destination, a pointer to the one Savior who would save completely and never disappoint, who would never fail, the way that Gideon did. And we find that person once again back in Isaiah chapter 9, where after referencing the freedom, freedom that, was, that was found in the, in the day of Midian, goes on to say this in verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see, Jesus was the only one who could perfectly deliver what Gideon and the Israelites longed for. He, not Gideon, deserved to be king. He's the only one who could establish a kingdom without end. He's the king who knows and counsels and cares for his people. He's the king who has the power to rescue and deliver. He's the king who has the ability to reign eternally and to usher in peace. And because he is the prince of peace, We can trust him when our circumstances seem out of control. And as for Gideon, despite his failings, we find his name listed in Hebrews chapter 11. The passage that's gone on to be known as the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame of Faith. 
in which he is recognized for his obedience and his faithfulness. Now, wait a minute. He just created something that was a snare for him and his entire family. So why in the world is he included in this great chapter? Because he was so inherently faithful? No. Because he had placed his imperfect faith in a perfect God. See, our hope and our peace, brothers and sisters, can only be found in Jesus. And because he proved his faithful providence in the past, we are now enabled to trust him with our future unknowns. So rest in the goodness and the faithfulness of a God who knows and loves and pursues and delivers like this. A king who sits on an eternal throne, who orders and directs the events of your life, who does all of it, as we say regularly, for his glory and for your joy, because you can trust a king like that and only a king like that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for both the implicit and the explicit promises of this text. The promise that we are never alone. The promise that the God who delivered out of slavery and out of Egypt is the same God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the God who was aware of the particular needs of the Israelite people knew that what they needed first was to be reminded of your faithfulness and your love and your provision. That salvation was coming, but that the good news always follows the bad news. And so God, we realize that the bad news of our lives is that without you, we are destined for hell. That we have no hope for salvation. That there is no hope in our own goodness, in our own good works, in our own religiosity, in our own ability to save ourselves. That our sin is an act of rebellion and treason against the universal king. And God, because of that bad news, we delight in the good news. That that king loved us so much that he sent the Prince of Peace to die on our behalf, to be buried and dead in the ground, and to raise again from the dead three days later, to bring forgiveness and life to people who desperately needed it. And because of that, God, we now have a call in our lives, a call born of who it is you have declared us to be. So God, remind us of the gospel daily because we need to be reminded of the gospel daily. We are forgetful and trivial creatures who mess about and try to find happiness in all kinds of things that will never, never provide it. But you, God, are good and faithful and true. And so we pray that your hand of blessing would be on all those here who know your name and that for those who do not know you who are here this morning, God, that today would be the day of repentance, that they would look to you and find salvation in you and in you alone. And it's in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.